Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. As is traditional, a phrase that was sacred during my brief sojourn in the party the right long ago, two guests today, both named Sam by pure coincidence. Sam Gindin will analyze the Teamsters' new contract with UPS, and Samuel Moyne will talk about the tragedies of Cold War liberalism. The Teamsters' union has a new contract with UPS, which has been celebrated in labor and left circles. Its new president, Sean O'Brien, a fourth-generation Teamster, has a strong history, and he was elected with the support of Teamsters for a Democratic Union, which has played an important and admirable part in opening up the union over the 47 years of its existence. But despite significant gains in pay, there are some shortcomings in the contract. As my first guest argues, the Teamsters are conducting what has been called a form of militant business unionism, tougher than some of the tepid forms seen elsewhere in organized labor, but still focused largely on wages alone, to the exclusion of broader issues around work. Sam Gindin spent 26 years in the Canadian Auto Workers Union, most of them as an advisor to the president. Since he left the union in 2000, he's been writing and talking about labor issues and consulting with workers trying to organize a union if they don't have one, or trying to toughen it up if they do. Sam was the co-author, along with his longtime friend and collaborator, the late Leo Panitch, of The Making of Global Capitalism, published by Verso in 2012. Sam mentions Doug Fraser. Fraser was the president of the UAW from 1977 to 83, a period of serious crisis for the industry, the union, and the broad economy, as deindustrialization was intensifying. Here's Sam Gindin. There were some substantial gains in the Teamsters' deal with UPS, mainly higher pay, some improvement for the part-timers, and AC for the trucks, but there are a lot of shortcomings. Let's start with the part-timers. What's their history with the company? They were a big issue in the 97 strike, but what's happened since? The history of it is that UPS used to just hire full-time people. In the early 60s, Hoffa accepted uh, having some part-timers. It wasn't a lot, but there were some part-timers. In the early 80s, as you start moving towards neoliberalism and this intensification of a deregulated industry, UPS pushed very hard and won that the part-timers should really be second-class citizens. They were going to really get hammered, and that was consolidated over the years. I mean, they just kept getting concessions from them. And he divided the the union with the full-timers kind of accepting that as keeping UPS competitive and not taking an arm and a leg from them. And then what happens over time is the number of part-timers start growing. By 1997, they're a majority of the workers. And this is what's happening in the economy as a whole. So when the Teamsters took that on, now this was Teamsters led by Ron Carey. This is when you had the reform movement and the TDU effectively in power. They take it on and it becomes a real leadership role. They're speaking for the resistance and fight against precariousness in the economy as a whole. And then after 97, uh, Carey loses. Uh, Hoffa's son takes over, and that fight fizzles. And what happened this time that is so disappointing is it never really was on the agenda. From the very beginning, O'Brien saw the good position he was in. UPS was incredibly vulnerable, had lots of profits. He had a lot of support as a new leader. The TDU was now supporting him. And I think from the very beginning, he decided that he would make a deal with UPS, basically saying, if you give us money, plus a few other things we need, but primarily money, we will agree to leave you with the structure of part-timers being paid so much less than full-timers in place. We'll give you a five-year agreement, which they had before, but we won't challenge it, which gives you that stability and also a chance to recover some things because over that five years, they'll obviously restructure and increase workloads. We won't take on the working conditions of warehouse workers, and uh, you won't have a strike. That was kind of the deal. And I I think from the beginning, he decided not to cross certain lines and challenge them on any of those things so important to UPS because they would force a strike. You say that he really didn't want to strike. Why not? Strikes are risky. The difficulty for workers when they go on strike is if they really hurt the employer, if it's that kind of a fight that they have to hurt the employer, it's also risky for them. They might lose a part of the market while the other companies take it over during the disruption, and they might not get that back. So it's, 
it's always risky. It's a question of taking that chance. If he could channel everything into a wage focus, uh, there was a chance of avoiding a strike and also telling workers, look, look what a great negotiator I am. I, could get, I got this off for you without you having to uh, risk anything. I think there are other things about strikes that sometimes make labor leaders uncomfortable. One is that a serious strike develops new leaders. It activates the members and raises their expectations. You don't actually know when you're going into strike whether you'll win, so uh, you're raising expectations that you might not deliver. So sometimes you just need a strike because you do have to meet whatever expectations are there. There's a hesitancy to have a strike that is uncertain. Uh, I don't mean always. I, I don't mean that's uh, inevitable. But I think in this case, it was. You could tell from the beginning they were not emphasizing the two-tier difference. I mean, to actually have taken on the two-tier difference, they would have had to, right from the beginning, explain to the full-time workers why they would get a good increase, but the part-timers would get a larger increase because they were going to start a campaign to attack that structure, to think in terms of solidarity, to think in terms of workers having a certain equality. That didn't happen. They talked about uh, the two-tier that was introduced just in the last agreement. But other than that, they really didn't take it on. And, and they saw it as buying off the part-timers because the part-timers would also get a large wage increase. So it wasn't about taking on principles. And that was, I think, a key reason for why it's hard to strike. If you're just, yeah, if you're just striking over money, it's just a question of the workers thinking, how much am I going to lose for a strike and what are they offering? And, and that, can, that could be resolved without a strike. The hours question. You say that they could have increased the amount of full-time employment uh, by um, reducing the work week. When I first knew you, as I recall, you said that the auto workers had no interest. This is probably the mid-late 90s. Auto workers had no interest in, in shorter hours. They wanted the overtime dollars. Where is this now? Is the labor movement at all interested in these questions of less work? No. I, th I, think, one of, I think one of the great defeats is that the labor movement was very much born out of the fight for work time. Since the war, there's really been no more breakthroughs, no more significant breakthroughs in work time. There's a lot of people working part-time involuntarily. There's some people working part-time because it fits their lives better. But the labor movement hasn't been fighting over the question of reduced work time. And one of the reasons is that we started to move towards reduced work time in auto in the early 80s. But the discipline of, you know, what summarized as neoliberalism the insecurity that uh, people have led them to think that, well, if I can get the overtime, I just need it because I know there's going to be bad times ahead. And it's actually not only haven't we fought for reduced work time per worker, the work hours of the family has actually gone up, which is kind of astounding when you think of the technology and productivity growth since the war. It, it is just astounding that people feel more pressures in terms of work. So the number of hours has actually gone up if you think of the family as the unit. I mean, in the case of the Teamsters, there's two things going on. One is that some workers actually like part-time work, but they'd like to get a decent pay for it, so they don't have to, they don't have to think in terms of another part-time job. So the pay matters, but a lot of workers do want full-time. And right now, the reason they want it is, is, is because if you get full-time job, you don't just get more hours. You actually get very significant pay increases. So correcting that is important. So the wage differential is important. But this is one of those things, you know, when we talk about lowered expectations and normalization of certain trends, this is what happens after long-term defeats. Those kinds of questions get off the agenda because people are more concerned with uh, reproducing themselves, a measure of security. They're not strong enough to win anyway, so the question of winning breakthrough demands like that uh, isn't taken seriously. And that's where the labor movement is at today. It, it, it really is a shame. Working conditions, agreement on air conditioning, although that's going to be phased in, um, and it's going to take some time for this to, to make a difference. But what about other issues like speed up, repetitive strain injuries, surveillance? UPS is really big on surveillance. What about these kinds of issues? One of the strategic things that was sitting there in the wings of the strike was whether a high-profile Teamster strike at UPS could affect organizing in Amazon. Could it get that kind of attention and workers saying, look what these warehouses workers are getting. And the problem there is that, you know, going into this agreement, uh, the warehouse people were actually earning less. But the big point is that for Amazon workers, all warehouse workers, uh, working conditions are critical. The warehouse sector as a whole, its health and safety record is worse than in other places. And a lot of that has to do with competition and speed up and uh, workloads. 
So in warehouses, this is critical. If you want to organize, these issues are absolutely critical. And the negotiations didn't take on conditions in the warehouse at all, from what I can see. It did address the drivers to some extent, but it didn't do anything in terms of the warehouse. It was all channeled into money. And that becomes self-reinforcing. The message here is that working conditions are something you should take as a given. There's nothing you can really do about this. My, my own experience, wherever I've, ever, I've talked to workers in, in groups or at conferences, is that the issue that people want to talk the most about is workloads and the pressure on their lives, which affects them outside of work. And yet it isn't on the agenda at all. And it's become one of those issues that is seen as being radical. You're challenging management control. And you're better off thinking in terms of compensation, literally. My life sucks, but I'm getting compensated by wages. And if I try to take on uh, working conditions, I probably can't win. This is like the same territory we were talking about 75 years ago with the Treaty of Detroit. We, we're still in that uh, model. We're in that model, and the Treaty of Detroit is part of the cost. In other words, at a moment when the labor movement was strong in the 50s, coming out of the war and coming out of the Depression, there were very good reasons for people to be worried about consumption, because consumption has been constrained during the Depression and the war. But there was also a very conscious attempt by the state and corporations to challenge militancy into individual consumption. That was something they could deal with. Get workers away from talking about democratizing investment or thinking you know, about collective control over investment or collective control in the workplace. And the trade union movement was strong and militant, and it did win wage increases in that period, but it didn't use its strength to build for the future or to politically challenge corporate control. So we romanticize the 60s and we look to the militancy that was there. And we romanticize it in the sense that the militancy was there, but it was limited. And we're paying the price for that now. When, when they broke that militancy with higher, through their control over investment, slowing down investment, letting workers get unemployed, it weakened the labor movement. You know, we can't just think about going back to the 60s. There was a limit to the 60s. We have to think about it in more politicized ways. So, yeah, the Treaty of Detroit and the kind of unionism that emerged and was structured by capital in the state to emerge in that direction is really problematic historically. I'm speaking with Sam Gindon, the veteran activist and writer on labor issues. You uh, call for class struggle unionism, which is a great sounding phrase. Uh, what would this look like uh, in practice? Uh, you know, as time was that that kind of call would seem hollow, but it doesn't really seem quite so hollow now. The political environment is different. The attitude of a lot of working people is very different. How would you bring class struggle unionism into this UPS fight? It's a very good point, Doug. I think it's the right challenge to throw at people who use the term. Let me just give one example from the late 70s and then actually try to answer your question. In 1978, Doug Fraser was really frustrated with management because they're, they're constantly asking the union for cooperation and talking about partnership. But in the meantime, they were starting to really attack them in the, in the workplace and in terms of wages and benefits, the beginning of the concessions period. And he made a speech saying basically that uh, the str class struggle going on in this country, but it's one-sided. Only one class is fighting. And he threatened to organize farm workers and the civil rights movement and the social movements in some kind of alliance or network to really show that we're going to have class struggle with both sides fighting. Now, nothing came of it because it would have meant challenging the Democratic Party, and he wasn't ready to do that. And again, it's one of those things that nothing came of it, and the result is we're still paying for nothing coming of it. So when you take it into the present, I guess the, the argument is, to make it more concrete, that the reality of capitalism is that it's permanent class warfare. You know, as you're kind of implying, everybody knows that. You know, in the 60s and 70s, we would say, you may be getting a lot of material goods, but your life is kind of shit. And we have to convince workers that there was more to life. Today, I, you, know, you don't have to tell workers that capitalism sucks. The question is, can you do anything about it? And the point of the experience in life is, yeah, it's, it's class struggle is going on all the time. They're screwing us and taking whatever they can all the time. So that's there. The point is to take that and say, well, we have to respond to that with a different kind of unionism that recognizes that this is the permanent state of affairs right now. And what it implies is that if you want to resist, you have to be ready to disrupt constantly. 
you can't sign five-year agreements and say we're going to wait five years while the corporation can wage one-side-of-class war. You know, once you recognize the obvious that capitalism means class war, and what's been going on is one side has been fighting, and the only way you can resist if you're fighting, it has certain implications. One is that workers have the power to disrupt, and you can't just say we'll, we'll sign five-year collective agreements and wait till five years again and then pick it up again. You have to be ready to fight all the time. You have to be ready to fight over health and safety in the workplace, on production standards in the workplace, the lack of dignity in the workplace. That has to be going on all the time. And that also means that you have to think about how you organize. And by the way, this notion of disruption is especially important in places like Amazon, which are completely based on their ability to deliver goods quickly. So disruption isn't just a, a, an ideological position. It's actually a very concrete response. You can't tell Amazon, we're going to go on strike in two months when our agreement ends. I'm not expecting to get around you with a billion logistics. So you have to think about disruption. And if you think about disruption seriously, it means that the union has to be deep. You have to have the commitment of workers to act and the autonomy to act by department. You have to be able to coordinate it all. But you have to really create the kind of union that isn't just led from the top and when the top tells you to come out. You have to see democracy in terms of this kind of mass participation and depth of commitment to what you're doing. And that starts challenging the nature of unions today. The question of class struggle unionism isn't just a wild ideological notion. It's very practical. And it's also practical in the sense that if you want to organize places like Amazon, you will probably need the trade union movement to work together instead of competing to see who will get them. And that also means having a class perspective that crosses unions. So the question of, of class struggle unionism, of democratic participation, of really developing the capacities of workers to struggle, it all goes together in shaping a different kind of unionism. And I guess what I, would scare me is I don't see a dynamic internal to unions to move in that direction, both because the members are fatalistic and fragmented and have lowered their expectations in, in terms of issues like control, and because the leadership, a lot of it has become comfortable with the lowered expectations. So I, I think transforming unions will actually require socialists who are grounded, who have a foot in the union movement, experience the contradictions of working class life and a foot outside, but not socialists as individuals, organized socialists. And as soon as you start saying that, you're beginning to talk about a party, a party that's committed to class formation, which is also different than jumping ahead and saying the issue is electoralism, which is, of course, ultimately a very important question, and it's a tactical question. But if you're rushing ahead to electoralism and there's no base out there, uh, you may win an election, but you'll find out you can't do much anyways because it's so tough to do things unless you have that base. It's that base that makes elections truly relevant. In your article, you say that one way they could have brought a more class struggle aspect to it was by raising the issues of uh, working conditions, right? Yes, no, absolutely. Once, you know, when you raise issues of wages, it usually means that it's something that's bargained centrally at a bargaining table where workers aren't at. As soon as you start talking about working conditions, you're talking about strengthening workers in the workplace and getting workers active. You can't just declare some rule about management will not do this. They'll do it anyways. You have to actually be strong. You, have to, you want to be reinforced by the collective agreement and the resources of the union, but you have to be strong in the workplace. And when, you know, you mentioned the, the, the 50s and 60s earlier and the unions. Well, you know, one of the strategies of Luther in terms of consolidating the strength was to emphasize wages and benefits and de-emphasize working conditions because working conditions were something that communists and the left could mobilize and organize around in the workplace where they were strong. But if you emphasized wages, you could centralize that. And it's a similar issue today. If you want to think in terms of transforming the union, you have to think in terms of what workers face on a daily basis and how you fight over that. And that means you have to involve the workers in that. And that shifts the balance of power towards the workers. You know, that's one thing you can do. You might think about, you know, one of the things you absolutely have to do is say, we can't preach solidarity and class warfare if we have two classes of workers in our own workplace. So you have to take on two tiers and you have to take on this question of the extreme exploitation of part-time workers. So you have to change something like that as well. You might think about, well, why don't we have, look at sectoral bargaining so we can create standards uh, across the warehouse and, and delivery sector. Not doing it technically through some law that says the union will bargain for the sector, 
which people look to, and the union will set minimum standards. You have to do it in a way that actually involves workers and isn't just bureaucratic. Otherwise, you'll just end up with some minimum standards for the organization, but you won't have the ability to enforce anything, especially working conditions. Now, if you talk about working conditions, you're sort of stepping out of the workplace uh, to some degree, because it's, you know, if you're talking about, for example, the stress on workers' lives uh, and their family lives, uh, home lives, uh, that means, you know, it's not just a strictly workplace issue. No, absolutely. It's it's an issue that's very much rooted in the, in the workplace, but yeah, it's, it's completely about their work lives. It's about having time to do things with your family. It's actually about having time to not being completely exhausted. I I would say, uh, you know, dealing with work time is also an issue. It's about controlling your schedules, by the way. Like if you're working 10-hour shifts in a warehouse, most of the injuries come after your body's actually been worn down already after the first eight hours, and then you're working the extra two hours. But yes, you're absolutely right. It affects your life in every way, your sex life. It affects, you know, the quality of having the energy to spend time with your kids. It affects your ability to be active in the community. It affects your ability to be active politically. You you are not going to be going through hell at work and coming home and deciding what I really want to do is read a couple of chapters of the Communist Manifesto and then go to a meeting. I mean, these are really tough questions that we have to address. We expect workers to get more politicized, but we do have to deal with what work does to them and the the time question for families. Okay, and finally, what are the implications of this settlement for uh, the upcoming dispute between the uh, auto workers and the big three? Ah, Good questions. You know, a lot of the left really cheered this agreement. Their response to it was that this is the best agreement ever for the Teamsters, which actually isn't saying very much if you think that other than the 1997 struggle, the Teamsters have kind of been the epitome of militant and business unionism. So it's not saying much that this is the, the best one, but so the problem is that the left hasn't actually been looking at this carefully and challenging it. So some people immediately thought, well, this will really help the auto workers because look how militant they are. But if the message is that the strength of the Teamsters is that they're technically so good that they get a, could get a great agreement without a struggle, uh, that isn't going to work very well in auto. The auto workers have really stuck their neck out. The new president has really stuck his neck out to say, I'm fighting for reduced work time. I'm fighting for t- against two tiers. Uh, I'm fighting for working conditions. And you don't win those things by sitting around the table and uh, making a deal. Those are struggle issues. So there's two points here. One is that does the Teamster agreement help the auto workers? And I don't think so. It may raise some wage expectations. I think that will happen. It may make the auto workers feel like, well, we can't get this, so let's at least get the wages teamsters, which I, I would consider kind of a negative influence. But the real difference is in, in the situation. The teamsters were in great shape to take on UPS by shutting down 340,000 workers that affect business and consumers. The auto workers are going into an agreement where Fane barely became president. The participation in the vote was low. The big three locals are actually still, a lot of them are still part of the old guard, so he's got a lot of opposition. And he hasn't had much time to turn things around. So I admire his readiness to take risks and stick his neck up. But I think it's actually going to be difficult, Teamsters or no Teamsters. And I don't think that the Teamsters agreement solves any of those problems. I mean, had it been a major fight, okay, that might have created a different kind of mood that workers are fighting and they're ready to, to do this. Had the Teamsters, for example, said, uh, we're going to postpone our settlement and just go into negotiations at the same time as auto and have a joint contract struggle. That's interesting. It's us thinking in terms of the class. But to think in terms of the class, you actually have to transform the unions. There's no way the Teamsters are going to say we're going to link ourselves to the auto workers when they see the auto workers facing a much more difficult situation. I think those are the kind of questions that should be raised. You know, Jim McAlevey raised the question of, why not postpone your contract so you're in line with the auto workers and really have a large struggle? Well, that implies changing these unions in the first place, changing the Teamsters in particular in the first place. And that wasn't happening, which is kind of gets to this other question about the role of the TDU, which has been the opposition for a long time and it played its you know, courageous and inspirational roles in the past, but it decided to throw in with O'Brien this time. And I, you know, as I say in my article, I have no problem with them supporting O'Brien. That made sense. I have a problem with not retaining their independence so they could raise broader issues and broader forms of struggle. That's a tricky thing to do, to support a president, but to challenge him. But that's exactly the kind of question the left always faces. How do you not get cracked into this?
How is Sam Gindin? You can find his article in the Teamster UPS deal on the Jacobin Magazine website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. A woman done left and took all the reason I was working for. You better not try to stand in my way as I'm walking out the door. Take this job and shove it. All this time I watched my woman Drowning in a pool of tears And I've seen a lot of good folk die Had a lot of bills to pay I'd give the shirt right off of my back If I had the guts to say Take this job and shove it I ain't working some of Take This Job and Shove It by Johnny Paycheck Perhaps not the most sophisticated analysis of the labor-capital relationship, but you got to admire the spirit of the title. Next, the debasement of liberalism. Samuel Moyne, who holds a joint professorship in law and history at Yale, is just out with Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times, published by Yale University Press. Moyne has a sunnier view of liberalism than I'm inclined towards, but he makes the interesting argument that the tendency's emancipatory aspects were crushed by the Cold War, and the paranoid liberal anti-communism of the time paved the way for the twin neos, neoliberalism and neoconservatism. It's hard to say exactly what liberalism means these days, which is testimony to the long-term damage done by the reactionary turn that began in the 1950s. Samuel Moyne. What exactly is the liberalism that you're talking about? Before the Cold War kind debased or betrayed the original, how would you characterize the original itself? You know, as I see it, modernity is about emancipation from the old regime, and that involved rulership by kings, but also the expectation that you would do what your father did and that women were unemancipated and there was race slavery. And liberals challenged all that, the first emancipators, and they helped invent socialism, which became the second big framework for emancipation. No one wants to idealize liberalism because it failed in lots of ways. It was pretty practically connected to laissez-faire before the middle of the 20th century. And it was an imperial ideology for governing the whole world on, in a certain way. But nonetheless, I think it has some emancipatory potential that isn't exhausted. And my trouble with Cold War liberalism is it sort of turned its back on finding it. The word itself is confusing. It means, you know, as you mentioned, uh, 19th century laissez-faire. Milton Friedman tried to reclaim that word uh, for his uh, his doctrine. A New Dealish version of American social democracy, anti-communist variety of the 1950s, John Kenneth Galbraith's version, Keynesian business cycle management. And then also there's this tendency of rule by experts and the fear of the mob. Is liberalism all these things? It is. I mean, the, the funny thing is that Americans were kind of latest come to actually using the word because aside from a few people after Reconstruction, really there's no self-identified liberals until the New Republic magazine is founded in the United States after World War One. By that point, there are big liberal parties in Germany and the United Kingdom, and there had been liberal philosophers you know, in Europe for a century by then. And yet, as you say, there's just profusion now. So, I mean, I, I could see concluding that, well, we can't get any stability to this word. It could mean all things to all people. But I think by doing some history, we can at least say there were two big forms of it it really matters which one we are taking seriously and whether we keep either or both depends on having an argument about what it means. Those two forms being? One form comes before the Cold War, before the middle of the 20th century. And I described it as emancipatory. It was in the eyes of those who kind of invented liberalism. It was about giving individuals the capacity to live their lives freely and creatively and building a society in which they would do that. After World War II, especially, liberals began to become on threat patrol 
largely because the Soviet Union claimed to do better what liberals had initially promised, offer emancipation, create the world of freedom and equality that liberalism originally offered. And in response, liberals kind of basically opposed communism. And with rare exceptions, I think, like those who were trying to follow out Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal liberalism through the Great Society, liberals often looked for enemies instead. Judith Schlar is a central figure in your book, um, and she embodies the transformation of liberalism you're talking about. She started as a critic of Cold War liberalism and ended up as a proponent. Uh, give us some an outline of her story. So a lot of people say that Cold War liberalism just emerged especially among Jewish thinkers, when they see the Weimar Republic collapse and they experience persecution and ultimately genocide. But Judith Schlar, who was born in Eastern Europe, much like many other Cold War liberals, and fled to the West, became a Harvard professor, she, as a young person, was bitterly critical of it. And she said, the problem with liberals is that they aren't ambitious enough and they've lost touch with the promise of emancipation. I kind of reclaim her as a youth because she shows that even at the height of the Cold War, you could be very skeptical of Cold War liberalism. But she couldn't resist the pull. She couldn't. But, you know, in fairness, the Cold War went on a long time and she got older and, like many people, more conservative as the years passed. Uh, let's just hope it doesn't happen to us. But <laughs> I'm a lot older than you, and it hasn't happened to me yet. But right, exactly. So <laughs> I mean, with some you know noble exceptions, she lived the fate of most people, which is to see herself become less critical and less idealistic with age. But that doesn't mean that we should side with where we she ended up rather than where she started. What is the relationship of liberalism to romanticism? Capital R romanticism. Well, in the beginning, all the liberals like John Stuart Mill, Alexis de Tocqueville were romantics. By that, I mean that they didn't say liberalism was about people of diverse views getting along without violence. Rather, they said the point of liberalism is to emancipate people into creating themselves as interesting people and making a contribution to the common good precisely by going their own way. They weren't libertarians exactly, especially Mill as he aged, because he became one of the great liberal socialists. But he, like Tocqueville, basically said, we need to build a society in which there's the right mix of institutions to launch people. This is why liberals have been so associated with educational institutions, but there were a range of other institutions they thought could help liberal society achieve its end, which is not just coexistence or commerce, but creativity and launching people into lives of it. Prometheus is an interesting figure uh, in this. He's a romantic model, a uh, departure from the careful rationality of the Enlightenment. And now there's this, a strain of anti-Prometheanism that's uh, growing up among degrowth eco-Marxists. They think yep. the Promethean yep. spirit is evil. Correct. How do you evaluate that development? That's really interesting. One way in which the, even the youthful Schlar, I think, made a mistake was to reject Prometheanism and, and Romanticism more broadly. I kind of indict her for that. But you're right that Prometheanism could be you know, associated narrowly with a kind of like economistic version that's really just about material abundance and growth. And I think it's a possibility worth taking seriously until we've figured out how to combine ab abundance with the survival of the planet. But most liberals really did think that freedom is going to depend on adequate material circumstances or more. Even someone like John Maynard Keynes, one of the one of the great liberals of the middle of the 20th century, writes in economic possibilities for our grandchildren that we're near attaining enough growth that the real problem will begin, which is that we have to figure out how to spend our lives. So, you know, you could be maybe as a liberal for degrowth, you could be as Keynes was more for like a plateau system, like we've got enough now. It was crucial to get the right material circumstances, but there's enough now. Or indeed, if you think we can solve the ecological quandary, you could think that liberalism depends on growth. And a lot of people do believe that 
without growth, you won't have the preconditions of democracy, which was always linked to increasing standards of living. I don't really have a strong take on that. I think it would be very interesting to try the plateau model. What if Americans concluded they had enough, let the Chinese and others engage in some catch-up growth and called the game there? Do we need more than we already have? But the, the people I'm talking about in this book are not kind of in that debate. They're kind of telling us what our end should be. And then the Cold War liberals are very frightened of the Soviet Union's promise of a radiant future, yet none of them really face the big consequences of growth that for generations no one really foresaw. What did uh, Karl Popper, uh, George Soros's uh, favorite political philosopher, do for history, and what did that do to liberalism? Popper was a socialist in his youth, and he grew up ideologically in, in a kind of cauldron of interwar Vienna where there was a socialist right that controlled the city, even as nationally in Austria, the far Christian right rose, eventually took over and suppressed the socialists. And of course, that in 1934 paved the way to Adolf Hitler's more or less annexation of the country. Popper was appalled and began moving right. He kind of blamed socialists for what had happened in Austria, which sounds dubious to me. But in response, he kind of said, the trouble is that socialists believe that history is on their side. And it's just not. There's a certain plausibility to some of his attacks on the idea that history has laws. But more generally, I think, you know, the liberals who came before the Cold War believed in appealing to history. They said, not the arc of the moral universe must be made to bend towards justice, but towards freedom, collective freedom. The trouble with Popper's outrage response to the collapse of socialism in his country was kind of to ditch the whole idea that we need an optimistic story to tell about how people were once unfree and we need to make them free collectively in historical time. What about the neoconservatives? You have an interesting chapter on Gertrude Himmelfarb, perhaps less famous than her husband, Irving Kristol, but a significant figure in herself. What do they contribute to this? What I try to say in the book is that Cold War liberalism as it emerged in the 1940s was not the same as neoliberalism of Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman and others. It also wasn't the same as neoconservatism, but it was poised on the brink of those things. So it's no accident that Cold War liberalism, having killed off the earlier liberalism very soon by the 1960s and 70s, kind of collapses into these other movements, neoliberalism and neoconservatism. And Himmelfarb is a fantastic example because in the 40s, she's a liberal. She is just a different kind of liberal than there had been before. And she writes a lot about how important religion and sin are going to be for liberals so that we don't dream big and we can steer clear of, of the Soviet Union's promise of emancipation. And not long after that, of course, she relies on Christian voters in the United States to basically argue for deconstructing the welfare state, you know, in a kind of Victorian mode. She became famous in the Reagan revolution for arguing that we need to get rid of welfare, which makes people dependent and allow families to kind of take care of themselves. The point of including her is to say Cold War liberalism is dangerous, not just for ditching the older forms of liberalism, but for paving the way towards things that aren't liberal at all, like neoconservatism. I'm speaking with Samuel Moyne, author of Liberalism Against Itself, just out from Yale University Press. But the Cold War liberals also had an affinity with neoliberalism, which isn't always appreciated. Could you draw out those parallels? So in the 40s, they're all on the same team, horrified by the Soviet Union externally and socialism domestically, which they fear will be, as Hayek called it famously in 1944, the road to serfdom. Even though Cold War liberals were in their voting patterns, social Democrats, they never argued for the welfare state. If you read their works, it's all about liberty versus totalitarianism. My thesis in the book is that we can't just say Cold War liberals were neoliberal although they had neoliberal friends, but they kind of paved the way for it by leaving the welfare state without any liberals championing it, telling us why we need the state and its redistributive action to make us free. 
Hayek and his successors like Friedman could swoop in to a very propitious situation in the 1970s and 80s. Now, the anti-communism made them advocates of a limited state, anti-statist, almost something they shared with the people on the right. But how did they square that with their intimate connections to American imperial power after World War II? Because there's, there's nothing restrained or anti-statist about that. Well, absolutely. Uh, they mute their criticisms of it from the beginning. I mean, they join the Cold War with gusto. Now, it's only fair to say in the early days, they were more on the side of those Cold War liberals who were arguing for containment rather than rollback. Nonetheless, obviously, that involved a reinvention of America and its role in the world in the direction of a military industrial complex, which these folks never criticize. I think even worse is that in those early years, their attitude towards decolonization, which is really the most emancipatory event in history, is kind of skepticism that brown people can ever have freedom and equality in the first place. It's also true that as the years pass, a different set of Cold War liberals get very rowdy. And people like Walt Rostow say, we need to meet communism with our own theory of how people can be launched into what he called consumerist high modernity. And of course, there were like a lot of developmentalist attempts that the U.S., state undertook in places like the Mekong Delta, which were supposed to be um, not just about rollback of the communist threat, but about getting people to avoid communism precisely through becoming like great consumers in the way that Americans had become after World War II. I don't think most of the Cold War liberals, that wasn't their plan in the 40s, but that's what happened to their ideology. And it's, of course, that's what led the whole phrase Cold War liberalism to be coined by new left critics of this group in the era of the Vietnam War. Yeah. What is the uh, intellectual history of that phrase? Well, I don't think anyone's located the first use, but in the, the 60s, it got coined by people on the left to refer to the mistakes of the main characters of my book. And then puzzlingly to me, the label kind of got reclaimed. And so after Vietnam, of course, uh, neoliberalism is winning out and American power is being embraced again by American liberals who have seen where a more kind of restraint agenda can lead under the stewardship of someone like George McGovern, who loses so badly in national elections. And so Cold War liberals kind of reclaim the label that had first been critical of them as their own. And when I was a kid in the 90s, the New Republic magazine was kind of a beacon of self-styled Cold War liberalism. And of course, that led it in some very, I think, disappointing directions, which have laid some of the basis for the world we live in today. Yeah, they took great pride in being tough-minded. They didn't want to be softies. Correct. Yeah. So a young Peter Beinert, uh, who's now in a very different place on a range of issues, a great guy, was editor of the New Republic for a while there. And he explicitly invoked Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and other Cold War liberals as having defined liberalism as a fighting faith, quote unquote, against external threats. It's just that there weren't communists anymore. So there were terrorists to use to define liberalism against. And my concern in the book is to say that that rehabilitation of a kind of threat monitoring version of liberalism has been devastating for our own lives in the last 30, 40 years. Another formation that got a pass or even endorsement was Zionism, even though it's a collectivist status project based on a mythical version of history. How to get by? It's very common to say that most of the Cold War liberals were Jewish intellectuals, as neoconservatives were later. And, you know, my own take on that is that the clearest sign of that is in Cold War liberal Zionism. So I have a chapter about how many of these characters, Berlin and others, thought that Israel was allowed to have a national emancipation, indeed a violent one, even as they were pretty caustic or, as I mentioned, skeptical about decolonization in general. The Israeli state founded by socialists was anything but a night watchman state. It did get violent 
both in its war of independence, terrorism before, but in hurting a lot of people, Palestinians at the beginning and through our own day. And it's just an interesting fact about them that Cold War liberals were kind of apologists for all of that. But maybe one way of thinking about it is that they preserved some of the liberalism from the 19th century, which was very routinely about national emancipation and collective emancipation through violence that otherwise Cold War liberals were banning or treating as, you know, not viable around the world when it happened in Africa or Asia. Well, they can also see the Palestinians, I suppose, as uh, somewhat analogous to uh, the Africans and Indians they were contemptuous of. Yeah, that's right. It's as if they keep aspects of earlier liberalism around, but just for one people. And when Palestinians also claim national emancipation, of course, that's off the table and, and remains so for so many liberals in our country and others to this day. And that kind of nationalism is also very tied up with romanticism, which they also scorned, right? That's right. So, I mean, romantic liberalism was about individual self-creation, but also about collective emancipation. And all of the East European romantics were writing hymns for the Polish people or the Czech people. And really, that's what led to the birth of national consciousness, national movements, first in Europe and later around the world, that romanticism gave people a sense that the history of a people matters, its emancipation as a kind of glorified entity. And our trouble today in many places, like in Israel-Palestine, is you've got two heirs of that romantic emancipation and nationalism in one place. It's just that the Cold War liberals like embraced one and disregarded the other. Okay. What about liberals and liberalism today? There are the heirs of the Cold War liberals like uh, Paul Berman and Ann Applebaum. But then there's also, um, I don't know, I'm not even sure who would qualify at this point. But yeah. there is a certain liberal anxiety about fascism, Trump, Orban, Tucker Carlson. Do they have anything on offer that's positive as an alternative other than some vague notion of tolerance? Is there any content to it now? Not as far as I can see. I mean, many of them will, you know, celebrate the fact that Joe Biden has allegedly transformed liberalism in the spirit of Franklin Roosevelt. But many of us think there's barely been a challenge to neoliberalism within the Democratic Party as of yet. My take would be that Donald Trump, as well as Vladimir Putin in invading Ukraine, gave Cold War liberals, at least from their own perspective, kind of a gift because they could return to this threat posture, concerned about the basic continuity of American government, obsessed about January 6th and legalistic ways of circumventing Donald Trump rather than finding an electorally popular way of constructing a supermajority the way that Franklin Roosevelt, the real one, actually did. And then globally, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine gave a lot of people who were anxious about the criticisms of people like us of American endless wars, a kind of new, you know sense that American goodness in the world has a new lease on life by helping the victims of aggression in Ukraine fight back. So I think we're at a moment when there are lots of Cold War liberal revivals going on and not as much insight into how our times really call on liberals to pivot beyond all that and to offer something that is emancipatory at home and around the world. I'm often reminded of, a, I think it was a Pfeiffer cartoon during the, uh, the Yugoslav War, in which uh, the character who was usually, I think, a stand-in for Pfeiffer was watching TV and saying, finally, a war I can cheer for. They're, they're so tired of being in opposition to war that they're really happy to have one. That's right. I mean, and that's the history of our lifetime. But Kosovo and then and then Ukraine have been, unless you want to count Iraq, which you could for a while, have been these moments where liberals have felt there was a humanist use of force and it would emancipate by deploying American might somewhere. And of course, they've been regularly disappointed in the short or long run, but they keep, in a sense, wanting to find such causes and then they invent them when they can't find them. What about the possibility that the emancipatory side of pre-Cold War liberalism was parasitical on socialism? As they turned on socialism and as socialism declined, they had really nothing to dilute, to offer as, as a positive alternative. I think that's fair. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the best liberals helped invent socialism, as I mentioned, but once they turned on socialism, you could argue that 
they had not much to offer. I think that's true because as time passed in the 19th century and into the 20th with Franklin Roosevelt, it was very clear that a liberalism that didn't take material inequality and structural unfairness seriously didn't deserve to be called emancipatory. That said, I don't think we should only embrace a version of socialism that is about making people equal, because I think even socialists should adopt the liberal idea originally of of freedom. What's the point of equality? Well, it's to be free on an equal basis with other people, to live our lives, to make new contributions that might benefit others. Socialism on its own, unless it acknowledges its, its liberal content or saves some of that liberal content from liberals, I think is going to be insufficient. Finally, what about the possibility that today's liberals are those who actually call themselves democratic socialists or the heirs to the pre-Cold War liberalism are democratic socialists like Sanders or AOC, whom a lot of liberal Democrats see as troublesome. But we saw John Lewis saying during the 2016 campaign that Medicare for all is bad because nothing is free in America. What about that? These might be the the true liberals of today. Exactly. I I think that you know, the response of that kind of left with which I'm a member should be to say liberalism has never been tried because it wasn't libertarianism. It was about using government and institutions to liberate everyone the world over. And that's clearly what Bernie thinks. And he is someone who wants to see not just less inequality, but more freedom so it, it's also about trying to take over freedom as a, the watchword that somehow the right has gotten to own in, in the last 50 years, really. And I totally agree with you that it has to involve them attacking the Democratic Party as failed stewards of the very liberalism that the right says the Democratic Party incarnates. I was Samuel Moyne, professor of both law and history at Yale and author of Liberalism Against Itself, from that university's publishing house. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the Internationale, performed in Le Jazz Hot Style by Stefan Grappelli. Till next week, bye. <laughs>